What is one of your favorite books from childhood? One that impacted you? One that had you thinking a lot? That you reflected on? Maybe you read it more than once. Well, one for me is Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls. This book was made into a pretty awful movie in the early 70s, but the book itself impacted me so much. I remember vividly on a camping trip with my parents, and I was sitting in the cab of the truck that we had our camper on, and I was finishing the book, but I got into the cab because I was embarrassed. I didn't want to be seen crying my eyes out. <laughs> the end of this book is, uh, you got to read it. You got to read it. It's about a boy uh, in the Kentucky Hills. I think it's, or maybe it's Oklahoma, anywhere, somewhere in the South. And he gets two dogs and it's the story of him coon hunting with these two dogs. And it's just really impactful. So here I'm going to share the audio of Wilson Rawls himself, the author, speaking to a group of people. I think this was recorded in the early 70s sometime, but it's, it's pretty amazing. So if you are familiar with where the red fern grows or you're not, listen to this talk. And I've heard some people tell me it's the best speech they've ever heard. On Wednesday evening, March 27, 1974, if you had driven down the streets of Salt Lake City toward the movie theaters at Trolley Square, you would have come upon an unusual sight. Salt Lake City is one of America's great cities, but it is also one of our most reserved religious and civilized cities. In 1974, as well as today, it was not known for its nightlife or noise. And yet there, on the streets of Salt Lake City, just before midnight in 1974, you would have encountered a crowd of people, all of them milling about a tall man and his wife. In most cities, the event easily might have been mistaken for an accident or a mugging. But if you had slowed your car, you would have seen that the people in the crowd, adults and children, were gently thrusting pieces of paper and books at the man, and he, in turn, was patiently autographing them. Who's that, you might have wondered? The weather-beaten face of the man did look familiar, not the way famous faces do. The fact of the matter was there had been a movie premiere, a world premiere of a movie, and many of its stars had made appearances. But the actors and the actresses had long since departed for their hotel rooms. Only the man and his wife remained. The movie was based upon and named after a book he had written, Where the Red Fern Grows. But the book and movie tell only part of the story of how that 60-year-old man, Wilson Rawls, came to be standing there on the sidewalk, signing his name under the streetlights and stars. Even if you had stopped to inquire of the crowd, hey, what's going on? You wouldn't have gotten the whole story. The whole incredible, heartwarming story not from the people in the crowd, at least, because few, if any, of them knew it. 
But the man and his wife knew the story. Oh, they certainly did. They, above all others, knew the story of Wilson Rawls's journey from the poor dirt farm in Oklahoma's Cherokee Nation to the status of celebrity author. Today, Where the Red Fern Grows is one of the best-known and most beloved children's novels of our time. Indeed, you'd be hard-pressed to find a single middle-grade classroom in America that doesn't contain someone who has read this book. Often, it would be half the class or more. Wilson Rawls was born Woodrow Wilson Rawls, September 24, 1913. He was named after the 28th President of the United States, and throughout his life, his friends always called him Woody, short for Woodrow. He died at the age of 71, December 16, 1984, a little more than 20 years after the publication of Where the Red Fern Grows. Most of his last 20 years were spent writing his second book, The Summer of the Monkeys, and visiting schools, telling children and their teachers the remarkable story behind his books, the story you are about to hear in his very own words. He was working on a third book when he died. My name is Jim Trelease. I write, lecture, and talk about children's books. Not long after I began doing this kind of work back in the 1970s, I started to hear pieces of a story about Wilson Rawls and how he'd come to write his book. Eventually, I learned that all of those anecdotes were related to a speech he was giving around the country, a speech so moving that people in the audience were repeating it almost verbatim years later, each time with tears in their eyes, each time whispering, it was the best speech I ever heard in my life. I never had the privilege of hearing Wilson Rawls give that speech in person. But after many years and many, many inquiries, I found the next best thing. I found his widow, Sophie Rawls, living quietly in retirement in Wisconsin, treasuring the memory of her husband. She also was treasuring a small box of audio cassettes, recordings of his speech made before different audiences all over America. She was kind enough to share those recordings with me. I had told her that if we could find a good enough tape, perhaps we could reproduce it and make his speech available to new generations of children and adults who loved his book but missed out on hearing his personal story. As I listened to each tape from that box, I was disappointed to discover they were not professional recordings. The sound was off or there was background noise. Something flawed each recording. And then I came to the last tape. With my fingers crossed, I pressed the play button. And there it was, the near-perfect recording, the one that had made him sound as though he were right there with the listener, having a conversation around the campfire. What you are about to hear is Mr. Rawls' famous speech called Dreams Can Come True. And this particular time, it was delivered to a teacher's convention Included in the audience that day, and you'll hear references to them, were his wife and another writer for children, Walt Morey, the author of Gentle Ben. A man who struggled to become a writer had many of the same roots as Wilson Rawls. Indeed, Walt Morey repeated first grade three times and didn't learn to read until he was nearly 14 years old. And now, let's let Wilson Rawls tell his story. Now, before I go into this talk, there's a few things that 
I think we better get straightened out. I'm not a professional speaker. Although there seems to be an awful lot of people trying to make one out of me. But I don't think I could be a professional speaker even if I wanted to. I'd have two strikes against me to begin with. One, my word vocabulary is practically zero. And I'm going to make a statement now that I don't know whether very many people would have nerve enough to make at this kind of a setting, especially English teachers. You're going to hear more grammar mistakes in one speech today than you will hear the rest of your life. I don't think this is altogether my fault. My mother said that I was born in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I guess she must have been right. Now you're going to hear words today in my talk that some speakers may say they're not very appropriate words for a speaker to use but I don't care what other speakers has to say. They're the only kind of words that I know, the words that I grew up with as a boy. Words from the hills, the folklore word. You'll hear words like mama and papa, grandma and grandpa, well, us kids in those hills, you never heard a kid say, go run in the house and say, Mother, can I do this or that? It was always Mama. We didn't run up to our fathers and say, Father, can I go here or there? It was always Papa. These are the words that I grew up with, and they're the only ones that I know how to use. I grew up in those hills on a little farm. This farm has been deeded to my mother. She's part Cherokee, back in the latter 1800s. That's when the government chopped up the Cherokee Strip and deeded it out in allotments to those who could lay claim to the Cherokee heritage. My mother was part Cherokee. I even have a roll number myself. I was the only boy in the family at that time, but. I had a whole house full of sisters, five of them. I never have thought that was fair, but there wasn't anything <laughs> I could do about it. And uh, like most country boys in those days, I didn't have any boys to run around with or play with. Neighbors were few and far between. And I was always alone. But the only friend I had was an old dog. And I couldn't play with my sisters. That was utterly impossible. You couldn't do that. They didn't live in the kind of a world that I lived in. They lived in what I called a girl's world. This is a world, a wonderful world for girls. Playhouses, corn shuck dolls, mud pies, and what have you. Now, this didn't interest me as a boy. I was interested in the outdoors, hunting and fishing. And I don't think I've ever had all of it I wanted in my life. 
I can remember so well that uh, my five sisters, they each one had a playhouse up on the side of the hill from our home. And I can remember many mornings at breakfast table when I could hear my little sisters trading playhouses for the day. And uh, this always wound up in a big fight because they'd swear the other one didn't take care of their playhouse. They wouldn't let me around those playhouses. That hillside was girl country. Sometimes I'd try to sneak up there and see what was going on, and if you ever saw five girls that could throw rocks, <laughs> you should have seen those girls. We didn't have any way to get an education there in those hills. It, it was oh, terrible in a way. My first schooling was when Mama sent off and ordered six little blackboards. And she'd set us kids down on the floor, and this was mostly in the wintertime, and she taught us how to write our names on that little, those little blackboards and how to add a few figures. That was my first schooling. And Mama said I was about nine year old when they finally, we didn't even have a schoolhouse at the time. That tickled me to death. I didn't want to go to school anyhow. <laughs> Mama said I was about nine year old when the little community began to kind of settle up and they decided they'd build a schoolhouse. Well, when they built this schoolhouse, they did me a wonderful favor. They built it across the river from where I lived. And there was no bridge across the river. <laughs> the only way that my sisters and I could attend the little school, we had to wade the river. We could only go to school in the summer. The summer months, it was impossible to go in the winter. But I can remember so well that mother would fix our lunch in a great big old bucket. And she'd give it to my oldest sister, Gladys. Then she'd give her a lariat rope. And we'd go down through our field and climb over the rail fence, and we had a little trail that twisted its way down through the river bottoms and the cane breaks to the river. And right below a deep hole of water, there was a riffle. Now, this was a small stream. The water on that riffle, none of us kids can ever remember it being over 8 or 10, 12 inches deep, and we were always barefooted in the summer. But the reason Mama gave Gladys that old rope was in the spring of the year when the snows would melt and the rains would come, that little river would get all over those bottoms, wide, deep, muddy, and swift. And in that country, we had a fine white gravel in the bottom of our streams. And this swift water would wash potholes out on that riffle. Some of them were pretty deep. And this is why Mama gave Gladys that old rope. On reaching the river, she tied around the waist of us little ones and holding the bucket of lunch in one hand and the rope in the other while she'd lead us across that riffle. The water in the little Illinois River there was always crystal clear. And she could see those dark holes on that riffle. She'd weed us around, weave us through them. On the other side, she'd hang that old rope up on the limb of a tree and we'd go on up to the little schoolhouse. The teacher didn't get paid anything. And they 
We never had the same teacher over a few days, week or ten days at a time. The way they worked it, the mothers took turn about teaching us kids in that little schoolhouse. We didn't get much, but I'm thankful for what we did get. You know, not long after the publication of Red Fern, we had a kind of a family reunion. And I still have five sisters and two brothers living. And during this reunion, we was laughing and talking about how we had to live so long ago in those hills and how poor we were and how we had to go to school. And I happen to remember that every time we went to school, Gladys always tied me right on the end of that rope. <laughs> every time. And I asked her, I said, Gladys, how come when we went to school up there in those hills, you always tied me on the end of that rope? She tied the girls right behind her, and my spot was right on the end of it. She laughed, and she says, you know, Bud, I've thought about that a thousand times since those days. She said, I always figured that if I had to lose one, I wanted it to be you. <laughs> I guess she thought by being on the end of the rope was the most likely place to... But she didn't lose me. We didn't have anything to read in our home. They couldn't buy books for us kids. They couldn't hardly feed us. Our clothes were made on an old Singer sewing machine. But Grandma and Grandpa that lived there in those hills, they owned that old store that's mentioned in the Red Fern story. That old store is still there. We went back to shoot the movie. I went back to that old store. Grandma was an educated lady, and she'd been educated in those old seminaries around through those hills. And she knew that us youngsters needed books to read. And she would order books and give them to Mama, and Mama would read these books to us kids. Those are my first books. And uh, it looked like for a long time that Grandma favored those five girls in our family, me being the only boy, because for a long time, every book she gave Mama to read to us kids, they were stories that I didn't like. In fact, I called them girl stories. Now, this was stories of the three little pigs and the little red hen, little red riding hood, now, I'm going to tell you like I tell my kids in these schools all over this country. I don't want you to misunderstand me about those great books. They're great, they're uh, great classics. They always will be. Every boy and girl on the faith of this earth should read them once in life. But you take a boy like me that loved nothing but the outdoors, hunting and fishing. I couldn't get interested in anything like three little pigs. God, I hated pigs. <laughs> I had to feed the ones that we had there on our old home place. Now, I, I say that I didn't like these stories. I don't mean this literally. If it had an animal in it that any way, I liked it. 
But I wasn't paying any attention to Mama too much when she was reading that uh, Little Red Riding Hood story. I wasn't very interested in it. I didn't care anything about Grandma and Little Red Riding Hood. But when she came to that part where that wolf eat Grandma up, I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> it had an animal in it. And in the little pig story, when the wolf blew the house down on the pigs, I thought that's the funniest thing I ever heard in my life. I was beginning to think that that was about the only kind of stories there were, were stories like that. But one day something happened. We had an old tradition there in the hills. I've never really understood it, but we called it Mail Buggy Day. Once a week, there was a little buggy came out of the little town of Tahlequah. It twisted its way around through the hills, and it wound up at Grandpa's store. That was the end of the mail route. The old mailman, he'd stay overnight with Grandpa and Grandma and go back to town the next day. And this old tradition was that on mail buggy day, somebody in the family had to be to the store. That's where the post office was, in the back of Grandpa's store. I don't know why anyone in our family ever had to be there. We never did get any mail. It was just an old tradition. This happened to be the day the buggy came up and Mom and Gladys had gone up to Grandpa's store. <coughs> I came in from the field that evening. I was very young. I remember I was cutting sprouts down in the field. I stopped at the wood pile and got an armload of stove wood. That was one of my evening chores was to see that Mama's wood box was full. And when I walked into the kitchen, I was putting the wood in her box behind the stove. And she said, uh, guess what? And I thought, well, now what's coming? I figured I was going to get a whipping about something. I said, well, what have I done now? Mama laughed and said, oh, you haven't done anything. She said, Grandma got us another book. She said, I'm going to start reading it tonight. And I said, well, big deal. It'll be another one of those pig stories. <laughs> Mama said, no, I think you're going to like this one. Now, this, I think, can show in a way how the eyes of a young boy can be opened to this wonderful world of books. Because when she started reading the story that night, I was never so fascinated by anything in my life. I didn't know there was anything like that. It was a story of a man and a dog. And that night... Well, Mama closed the book up and said, well, it's getting late. We have to go to bed. I'll read more tomorrow night. For the very first time, I cried and I begged her to read more of that story. I was hooked right then and there. Now, practically all of the education I have, I had to get it myself from books. I don't think I've ever met a man or know a man or read anything about anyone 
that has read any more books than I have. I've read books all of my life. I still read and study many, many books. But the one that she read to me that night, it'll always be the most favorite one of all, even the ones that I write myself. This is the one she read to me. It was Call of the Wild by Jack London. Now this isn't a book. Every school I walk in and show this book to the kid, they think it's the book. I wore that book out many, many years ago because after Mama had read the story, she gave me the book. And do you know my wonderful mother, after she'd finished reading one of those books that Grandma gave her to read to us kids, every night she'd make us read a page or two out of those books. Each one of us youngsters had to read a page or two. She gave me the book after she had finished it and us kids had all gone through it. And for a long time, everywhere I went around our old home place, I carried that book with me. Every chance I got, I'd sit down and read out of it. And it was so strange in a way, it didn't make any difference to me where I opened the book. I could read it backwards and enjoy it just as well as I could frontward. And I had an old blue tick hound at the time. He's the one I wrote my new book about, Some of the Monkeys. And to this day, I don't know how he put up with it, but I know I almost drove him out of his mind with that book. I used to take him down in the river bottoms, and I'd set him down under a tree, and I'd get out in front of him and rake the leaves and things off till I had a little clean place. And uh, with a book in one hand and a stick in the other hand, I bet I read that story, that old hound, a hundred times. <laughs> I didn't have anyone else to read to or talk to. And the heck of it was, I wouldn't let Rowdy lay down and listen to me read. He had to set up and listen. <laughs> That's why I kept that stick. But he was a wonderful audience. He never did run out on me. <laughs> One day I was down in the field. Papa had me chopping some weeds out of some young corn. Rowdy was with me. He was always with me. And I had the old book with me, and I'd read him a page or two out of it two or three times that day, I guess. I don't know where the thought came from or the idea but I do know that a million times in my life, I wish it hadn't come around. But I thought, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could write a story like Call of the Wild? I don't know where this came from. I talked to a lot of writers. I have one a good friend right here with me, one of the best in the business for these kids, I think. I don't think he knows the answer any more than I do. Why are we writers? I think we get bit by some kind of a bug and you don't ever get over it. But the more I thought about this, the uh, more it got into my mind. And I first talked it over with Rowdy. I didn't have anyone else talk to. I asked him what if he thought I could write a story like that. And uh, 
I think he understood a little bit of what I said, and I know he did wag his tail. And my father, he was about just a little ways from me, plying in a field. I walked over to him, and I had the old book in my hand, and I walked up to him and I said, Papa, do you think I could ever write a story like this? Now, this is just a little boy talking. Well, he didn't know anything about writing books. And he told me, he said, well, son, I don't know anything about how to write a book. And he said, I'd think to write one that you're going to have to have some kind of an education. You're not going to get it in these hills. I told him something there that day that haunted me all of my life. I don't know why I said what I did. I said, well, Papa, I don't care how long it takes me or what I have to do. Someday in my life, I'm going to write a book. And when I do, it'll be a dog story. And I want to write it for boys about my age. And he told me, he said, well, son, I do believe this. I believe a man can do anything in life that he wants to do if he really wants to do it. And once he starts reaching out for it, don't ever give up. He said, I believe this very sincerely. Now, I'm sure all of you know that when you're young like that and growing up, you have a, you have a million wants. You make a million wishes and have 10 million dreams. But most of the time, nine times out of 10, these things come around in your life one day, next day they're forgotten about. But this didn't happen to me. Once I got that idea of wanting to be a writer into my mind, I, to this day it's still there. It came almost ruining my whole life. I started writing then, just the only way I could. They couldn't buy pencils and paper for me. They couldn't do anything like that, but like the, she said a while ago, I, I used to go down back of our field along the river, and I'd find one of those little sandbars. And I'd sit down and I'd pat the sand down, smooth it out, and I'd take a stick. And the way I worked it, I'd sit real still, and I'd make old Rowdy be still, too. And I'd listen. Anything I could hear along that river, back in the hills or the cane breaks, anything I could hear, I would try to describe in words what I'd heard. The scream of a red-tailed hawk, the cawing of a crow, churring of the squirrels, the mooing of an old milk cow late in the evening. Anything that I could hear, that was my first writing. After we left those hills and moved into the little town of Tahlequah, we didn't stay there long until the Depression days come along. Right away my people were, well, they were just on starvation. My father took up the trade of carpentry, and he made a carpenter out of me. To this day, that's the only thing I know, other than writing. It finally got so tough on us in that little town, a large family, we moved over to the little the town. I, I think it had around 20,000 people in it at that time. It was Muskogee, Oklahoma.
We moved into an old house down close to the railroad tracks. And boy, these were tough days. And from our backyard, you could see the freight trains coming in and out of the yards. And the trains were just loaded down with hobos. And then not far from where we lived, there was a little creek. And there was a hobo jungle on this creek. I used to go down and listen to the hobos talk. Boy, what fascinating stories. Far away places. Places I just heard of, never dreaming that I'd ever see any of them. The Rocky Mountains of Colorado and the fruit harvest. The Joaquin Valley of California. The hay harvest in Wyoming and the Jackson Hole country. The potatoes in Idaho. That's all they talked about was where you could get a job. One day I told my father, I said, I'm going to leave home. You can't feed my brothers and sisters. I was a pretty good-sized boy by this time. He thought it was all right, but my mother didn't. But we talked her into it, and I left home for the first time in my life. I think I must have been uh, 16 when we moved out of those hills. I think I must have been 18, I could have been 17. But I never will forget the day that I left home because it was a very sad day in my life. We were a very close family. And I was the only one that had ever left. For three years, I did nothing but bum around over this country looking for work. And there wasn't no work. Very little. You know, I found out something during those three years that I didn't know anything about. I was a loner. To this day, I'm still a loner. I think it was because of those years that I lived in those hills and I had no boys to play with or run around with. I think that was the cause of it. I don't like to go to dances or parties. And uh, if I go hunting or fishing, I like to be alone. And uh, no boy should grow up like that. It's Every boy should have one good friend or a buddy, but I didn't. During those three years that I bummed around all over the country, I kept writing. I couldn't quit. Every chance I got, I'd write on something. And sometimes I, she said I didn't have money enough to buy a writing paper with. But this writing had gotten such a hold on me that uh, I wouldn't let anything stand in my way. I, I used to go around in the alleys and strange little towns, and I'd take the brown paper sacks from the trash cans, and I'd cut the bottom of them out and split them open, and I had a big sheet of paper. Take the brown paper from boxcars and cut it up into strips, I wrote a lot of stories on that old brown paper. But I was so ashamed of those stories and the writing. I couldn't spell anything. I can't do very good to this day. 
I couldn't punctuate anything. That was out. That was out. I couldn't do that. I'd just write one line after the other. Wherever my voice broke, there was a dash. There was no paragraph. It's just one line after the other. I have the old handwritten manuscripts. When I go to the schools, I take them with me sometime and show them to the kids. Try to prove to them what a man can do if he really wants to do it. But you know, even though I wouldn't let anyone even look at anything I wrote, I was so ashamed of it, but I wouldn't throw those stories away. Why, I don't know. Every time I finished one, I'd just roll it up and tie a string around it and put it in my suitcase. And by as the years rolled along, the family left Oklahoma in one of those oaky caravans during the Dust Bowl on their way to California, but my people didn't make it. Their old car broke down right out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, into Harris Canyon. They were broke, and all those kids, and that's as far as they got, and I think it's one of the most wonderful things that ever happened to them. They got there years ahead of the big atomic boom and everything, and they all turned out real well off. I think it was a blessing that that old car broke down. My father built a home out on 221 Utah Street. And every time I got a chance to go home to visit my brothers and sisters and mother and father, every time I went home, I had quite a few of these little stories in my suitcase. I bought a big old steel trunk. And Dad had built a big workshop in the back of the home there. It's still there. I put that old trunk away back in one corner and I bought the biggest lock I could buy. And every time I'd go home, I'd put these little stories in that old trunk. Why, I don't know. They were very precious to me, but I wouldn't have let anyone, boy, I wouldn't have even thought about letting anyone look at them. And you know, I believe that very sincerely that if you're trying to do something, you're really trying, and as long as you're truthful and honest and you don't hurt anyone along the way, I think you'll have help. I know I did. One morning it was along, and it was in January, I came into a large town in Texas on a freight train, cold, dirty, and hungry. I knew that I had to get something to eat. I hadn't had anything to eat for several days. And I stayed in, I got into the yards before daylight, just a little while before daylight. I stayed in the boxcar, walked from one end to the other to keep warm. And I wasn't keeping very warm. It was a northern blizzard blowing across those Texas plains. And I didn't have the kind of clothes a boy should have had, but I had all I owned. By the time it got daylight, I walked up into town. As I walked along the street, I was really trying to find a Salvation Army or something where, where I could get something to eat. I knew I had to eat. I passed a hotel. It was a large hotel. And there was an awning out over the sidewalk. 
And just as I walked by, the door opened and a porter came out pushing a little cart loaded down with suitcases. And right behind him there was a big, well-dressed man with a white hat on and boots. You could tell he was what we call one of the wealthy Texans. I stopped under the awning. It was sleeting, bitter cold. And my clothes were already pretty wet. I leaned up again in the building and I was watching this man and the porter. They were putting these suitcases in a some kind of a big old car. I don't know what kind it was, but as I stood there looking, the man had his back to me. Uh, I got kind of mad. I thought, well, now here is a man that he's got so much money he can hire another man just to carry his suitcase. Here I am starving to death. I walked over to him and I caught a hold of his coat sleeve and I gave it a pretty good yank. And when he turned around and looked at me, I could see the surprise on his face. And I looked him right in the eye and I said, Mister, would you feed a hungry boy? He looked at me for a second or two and then he smiled and he said, I'll tell you what, son, I haven't had my breakfast. He said, let's go back in the hotel. We'll both have breakfast. And he said, I'll pay for it. Well, I didn't say anything, but as we went through the door, I thought to myself, well, mister, if we eat, you'll have to pay for it. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't tell me the truth because he only had a cup of coffee. We sat down at a little table, and I think I ate everything they had in the hotel. While I was eating, he started talking to me, and he asked me, he said, son, what are you doing out in weather like this, bumming around over the country? And I said, I'm looking for work. He said, well, what kind of work do you do? And I said, well, I'll do any kind of work. And he said, well, where do you live? And I told him. He said, well, I think you should be at home with your family. And I said, well, why? Dad can't feed my brothers and sisters, and I'm a grown boy. Somewhere there's a job. He said, well, this isn't right. He said, a boy like you shouldn't be out like this. He said, anything could happen to you. He said, there's some tough old boys out on that road. And there were, too. He reached inside of his coat and he took out a large envelope. He took the contents out of it and he put that in his pocket and he tore the envelope open. He laid it down on the table and he wrote something on it. And he took his time and he folded it up in a little square and he wrote an address on it. And he handed it to me and he says, son, you take this note to this address and just walk in and give it to the lady behind the desk. He said, I think they'll find a job for you. I thanked the man and walked out of the hotel with him. And I must have been a half a block from the hotel I turned around and looked back, and he was still standing by that car looking at me. Now, I thought about opening the note on the way looking for this address to read to see what was in it, but I couldn't do it. 
he had uh, he'd been so good to me I thought maybe if I did open it and read what he had wrote I thought maybe I'd be betraying him some way I didn't open it I wished I had a but I didn't I think later on that man was one of the great leaders of our country we've tried hard to find out but it was so long ago when I found this address I think it's one of the biggest buildings in that town and uh, I walked around it two or three times before I had nerve enough to go in and uh, but the thought of getting a job was so strong I finally I just ducked my head and walked through the door and he had told me to give that note to the lady behind the desk the first thing I saw there was a row of desks from one wall to the other, and it was a lady behind each desk. <laughs> I picked the one right in front of me, and what a wonderful lady she was, just a young secretary. I walked up to her and handed her the note, and I said, Lady, a man gave me this note and told me to bring it here, and I might have a job. And as she unfolded the note, she looked me over from A to Z. And I was scared to death. I don't know what was in the note. I wished I had have read it, but at least I could have got a name off of it. But whatever it was, it must have been something very powerful. She got up out of her seat and she said, uh, you go over and sit down in the lobby she said, I'll be gone for a few minutes, but I'll be back. And just as I turned to walk away from the desk, she said, now don't leave. And I said, well, I won't, lady, I'll be here. She went over and uh, just before she got on the elevator, she turned around and looked at me again and she said, now don't leave, I'll be back. I don't know what was in that note, but there was something in it. She was gone, I guess, oh, 15 or 20 minutes, I guess. And when they come back and the elevator doors open, well, here's about 15 well-dressed men with her. And here they come right at me. And they don't know how close they come a losing a country boy right there. <laughs> I came very close to having a runaway. But they came up to him, and one of the men that seemed to be the spokesman he said, son, don't you have any money? And I said, no, I don't have a dime. And they went down in their pockets and they made up a collection. It was $44.50. I'd never seen that much money in my entire life. They gave it to me and told me to go get me a room and to come back the next day. They're going to get me a job. And I'm not sure how many days it was that I went back to that building, but I'd always go to that same little secretary. And she'd tell me, well, we haven't heard anything yet, but the call has gone out. Sooner or later, you'll have a job. I hadn't even asked what this place was. I didn't care, as long as it was a job. 
And every day where well, she'd say, now don't leave town, and if you run out of money, well, you tell me and we'll take care of it. I don't know what was in that note, but it must have been something. I don't know just how many days it was, but one morning I walked in and I knew when I walked through the door that something had happened because she got up from behind her desk and she had a bunch of papers in her hand and she was smiling all over her face. I walked up to her and she just kind of beat the papers in her hand and she said, you have a job. And I said, well, good. Where is it? She said, it's a long ways from here. I said, well, lady, I don't care how far away it is. You just tell me where it is. I'll get there. Well, she said, I don't know. It might be kind of hard to get to this job. And I said, well, lady, it won't be hard for me. You just tell me. I'll get there. She said, well, how would you like to go to old Mexico? I was never so surprised in my life. I said, oh, Mexico, and she said, yes. I said, well, I've never been there, but if I can get a job, I'll go. She laughed and said, it won't be that much trouble. She said, everything is all taken care of. Your papers are all filled out. And she said, they're putting a brand new crew together, and she told me where to go in Houston. And she says, you go there, and you'll have a job. This was a head office of the Warren Oil Company. I went and got with these fellows. It was a brand new crew. And they were taking a rig into the jungles of old Mexico, looking for the new oil field. This was an exploration crew. I stayed with them a good many years. Bush country went on down into the Yucatan country. And you know, during all of those years, on payday, when the other boys would go to town to celebrate those sleepy little Mexican towns, I wouldn't go. I'd stay in the bunkhouses and write. Boy, this caused me a lot of misery. You can't stay around a bunch of rough, tough oil field workers like that and be writing all the time and never mail anything out and never get any mail, sooner or later they're going to wonder what's going on. And they'd ask me, what are you writing all the time? Who are you writing to? I'd tell them it wasn't none of their business. I had a lot of hard fist fights over that. I won some and I lost some. I've been down in that country with them for a good many years, and I'm sure some of you can remember when they took over the oil companies in Mexico. They came back to the States, went to work for some of the biggest construction companies in the business, Dell Webb, Morrison Knudsen. I was all over the world with MK. They got a job down on the guided missile range in New Mexico. And my people live around there, and I asked to be transferred from the job I was on the island. They sent me there, and I didn't like that desert. No place to fish or hunt, unless you wanted to hunt snakes. And then I heard they got a job up in Idaho at the atomic reactors, and it was a big one.
I went to my superintendent and told him, I said, I want to be transferred to that new job in Idaho. I've had all of this desert and this sand that I want. I could go any place in the world with them. They transferred me up to Idaho, and for a while I was very happy in a way, but I had to ride a bus 50 miles out to the reactors and 50 miles back, and I didn't like that. So I went out in the edge of the atomic proving grounds there in a little town called Mud Lake. It wasn't very much there. It was a farming, ranching town. And I rented me an old cabin. And I painted it up and cleaned it all up and bought me an old pickup to go back and forward to my job. And I went on for about a year, I guess, and I was doing all right. I had a wonderful place to stay. I could work all day, and if I wanted to write all night, I could. And on the weekends, Saturday and Sundays, I could sit in that little cabin and write, write, write. Why, I don't know. If I wanted to go hunting or fishing, I had the Lost River Range, the River of No Return, the Medicine Lake Country. It was all around me. I was really happy. But I, had, uh, I got acquainted with some wealthy ranchers in that country, and they talked me into quitting my job on the desert and contracting on my own, and I was doing all right. I had eight carpenters working under me. And I had uh, met a young fellow there. He turned out to be a very good friend of mine, Jimmy Stewart. One day he came up to where I was at the cabin, and he said, Woody, I'd like for you to send one of your men down to my ranch. I'm going to put some new roofs on a couple of old Mormon granaries. He said, uh, they're just as solid as they was and they was built 150 years ago, but the tops are going out on me. And I told him, I said, well, uh, everyone I've got's busy. But I like this fellow, and he was, uh, I'd fished with him and hunted with him a lot. I said, I'll go down and do it for you. I'd been working there for about two weeks for him on the, those granary tops, and one day he come and told me, he said, uh, my wife and I are going off on a visit for about a week. I'd like for you to just stay here at the house and look after things until we get back. And it was two or three days later, I was up on top of one of these granaries working, and a car drove up in the yard. And a lady got out of the car, and I thought, well, now, I'm not going to get down off of this granary, walk all the way down there and tell her there's no one at home. She'll beat on the door or ring the doorbell, and finally she'll go on her way. But this didn't happen. She'd ring the doorbell, and then she'd look up on the granary to where I was. I thought she was acting very silly, but there wasn't anything I could do about it. Finally, I thought, well, I'm going to have to do something. So I crawled down the ladder, and I went down there, and I guess in kind of a hard way, I said, lady, there's no one at home. She kind of laughed, and I told her, I said, Jimmy and Edna's gone off on a vacation for about a week. I don't know what happened. 
but uh, now I never intended to get married in my life. <laughs> That's the last thing I ever thought of. But as I stood there looking at her, something happened. About a year later, I married her. She's here with me today. And I don't think that she just drove up in that yard. I never will believe it. <laughs> I think she was supposed to. Because I could have looked this world over. I couldn't have found help like that. She's a retired budget analyst from the Atomic Energy Commission. She has a wonderful education. And boy, can she type. <laughs> She's my editor, my business agent, and my wife. But you know, about a week before we were married, I did one of the most stupid things that any man could ever do. I told her, I said, before we get married, I want to go down home and get some of my personal belongings. I had a little money in the bank I'd saved up, enough to get married on. I went home and the first thing I said when I walked in the house, my mother is still living, she's almost a hundred. I said, Mama, I'm going to get married. If you ever saw a surprised old mother, <laughs> you should have seen her. She looked at me and she said, well, I think it's time. <laughs> the next thing I did, I went out to that old workshop and I opened that old trunk up. I carried manuscripts on my arm like you'd carry wood to my mother's senorator at 221 Utah Street. I burnt every one of them. I got the crazy idea that this writing had came almost ruining my life. And I was very much in love with my wife and I didn't want to have to go through her to have to go through that with me. I thought I'd just forget about it. I went back to Idaho and we were married and we hadn't been married long and like Walt Morey told me the other day, you ought to know that you couldn't forget about it and you can't. Once it's there, it'll be there the rest of your life. You're a writer. I think it was about three months after we were married that one day I told my wife about burning the manuscripts and how unhappy I'd been all of my life because I wanted nothing in the world but to be a writer. And you know, when I burnt those manuscripts, one of the first ones that I crammed in that fire was this one, where the red fern grows. I wrote it over 35 years ago. After I told my wife about this, she said, well, if you want to write that bad, why just quit your job and sit down and rewrite one of those stories and let me look at it. She said, I know a little bit about writing. She says, don't worry about the bills. I make enough money to take care of that. So I did. I first started writing when I burnt five complete novels in that bar, hundreds of short stories and novelettes. I know now that there was not a one of them 
that any publisher in this country would have given anything to got his hands on. But I just was so ashamed of that writing. If you could see the old handwritten manuscript, I'm sure you would approve it. But I first started writing one that I wanted to write all of my life. I think maybe it'll be my last one. It was a story called The Dark World. But I wrote two or three chapters on it, and I laid it aside, and I wrote Where the Red Fern Grows. And you know, a strange thing happened. It only took me about six weeks to write the thing. I had it memorized. But the first, I wouldn't let her look at it while I was writing it. Every night when she'd come in from work, she'd say, well, how did it go today? And I said, well, I guess all right. And she said, well, can I read it? And I said, no, you can't read it. Wait till I get it done. I finished it on a Friday. I gave it to her Saturday morning and I went to town. I stayed downtown all day. I knew she had time to read it. And I called her on the phone. I just knew she was going to laugh at that writing. I don't know why I got ideas like that. You could write a story on anything. And if it's a story, they'll publish it. But I didn't know that at the time. But when I called her on the phone, she said, you get back out here at the house. I want to talk to you. <laughs> and I said, well, is there something wrong? She said, no. But she said, this is the most wonderful boy and dog story I ever read in my life. I hurried back out the house. And, and I said, do you really think it's a story? And she said, you better believe it's a story. But she said, you've got this thing in such a mess, I don't think we can do anything with it. I said, well, I knew that. That's why I wouldn't let you read it. Well, she said, I don't mean it that way. She said, you've got it in what I think they call a category of a novelette. And she said, I think I've read for a first-time author. It's almost impossible to publish one. This is one that's too long to be a short story and not long enough to be a novel. It's the in-between, and believe me, they are hard to publish, especially a first-time author. I said, well, what do you want me to do with it? And she said, well, do you think you could make it longer? It was about 30,000 words. I said, honey, I can make that story as long as from here to town, if you think it's a story. I sat down and wrote it the second time with my pencils and paper. I can't type anything. I never had my fingers on typewriter in my life. The second time, I got it up into about 80,000 words. And when she read it, she said, well, this is good enough. And you know, I was so happy that somebody believed I could write. I tried to get my wife to let me write it the third time. She thought I'd gone crazy or something. <laughs> she said, no, I'm going to type this off. And I said, well, where are you going to send it? She said, the Saturday evening post. And I said, oh, for heaven's sakes. Nobody writes a book-length novel for the post, but some of the biggest names in the literary world. And she's kind of bullheaded. She said, well, I don't care who writes for it. She said, I've read stories in the post. Not near as good as this one. So she typed it off and sent it to the post. In about three weeks, here it come back with a rejection slip. 
And I said, well, where are you going to send it now? And she said, I'm going to send it to the Ladies' Home Journal. Well, this is the Post. They're the, both the Curtis Publishing Company. And I tried to tell her that, and she said, well, I don't care if they do belong to the same company. There's some women editors on the Ladies' Home Journal. And if I can get this manuscript in the hand of a lady editor, we'll get it published. I don't think she thought too much of the men editors. She sent it to the journal, and I never went through anything like that in my life. About six weeks went by, and we didn't hear anything. And I began to get a little nervous. And then after about two months, and we hadn't heard anything, why, I wasn't nervous. I was getting sick. And I told my wife, I said, I think I know what happened. That thing got lost in the mail. She said, oh, I don't think so. I had it heavily insured. And I, we went to the library and got some books, and it said, don't query your editor. Give them plenty of time. Two months. But I hung in there, and you know it went on for about four months. And one day I got a letter. I still have the letter from a lady editor on the lady staff of the Ladies' Home Journal, Annie Insulin. And I don't know, I never have figured this out. The letter said, Dear Mr. Rawls, I'm sorry that it has taken us so long to evaluate your manuscript. And now we have very reluctantly come to the conclusion that it is the wrong kind of a story for a ladies' magazine. It took them people four months to figure that out. <laughs> But she didn't stop there. She said, but I want to see this story published, Mr. Rawls, and I want you to give me permission to take it to the Saturday Evening Post. <laughs> I wrote and told her I didn't care where she took it, if she thought she could get it published, but it had already been rejected by the Post. But she carried it over there anyhow. But it didn't go to the first readers that time. It went to the big man. Ben Hibbs. He took it home with him and he called me in the wee hours of the morning. He said, Mr. Rawls, I just finished this boy and dog story. I want to serialize it in the Saturday Evening Post. I couldn't believe what he had told me. It took quite a while for it to soak in. But once it registered that I had made the serialization in one of the biggest magazines in the world at that time. Over 16 million subscriptions besides what they sold on the stand. And once that it did register on me just what I had accomplished, I first I was scared. And then I got real proud. Boy, did I ever get proud. I wouldn't have spoke to Ernest Hemingway if I'd have met him in the middle of the road. <laughs> and you know, we still have the old post. During that year, they had the Jackie Cooper story serialized in it. The Dean Atchison story was serialized. And another big politician, I don't know who he was, he had a three-part serial in it. At the end of the year, I had a letter. I still have the letter. My little boy and dog story pulled more letters into the editors of the Saturday Evening Post 
than all three of those big names put together. I was very proud of that, too. I wouldn't have spoke to a politician either if I didn't. <laughs> then she went farther. She took it over to one of the biggest publishing companies in the world, Doubleday and Company. Right off, they accepted it. And then they broke my heart. If it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't be here today. See, it was first titled, The Hounds of Youth. Right away, these brilliant editors at Doubleday, they changed the title to Where the Red Fern Grows. And you know, for about six years, my little book sat out there on the shelves, and it didn't sell anything. No one knew anything about it. And they didn't put too much publicity behind it. Even Mr. Sargent, one of the head men of Doubleday, admitted that in his own writing in the Publishers Weekly. And they were going to call it out of print. We say come so close to losing this story forever. They have meetings about once or twice a year, these big publishers, and say they've got six, seven, eight hundred books they've published that year. There'll be a lot of those books that's not paying their way, and if they don't pay their way, they don't stay in print. Red Fern wasn't paying its way. They were going to call it out of print. But there was one little agent, Bob Brinehold, out of Salt Lake City, he just kept fighting. He had read the story and he loved it. And he fought those editors up one side and down the other. He said, if you just give this story a chance, put some publicity behind it, he said, it would, be, it would go. And the last time they were going to call it out of print, they gave him three months. He said, well, give me just another three months with it. And he got me a speaking engagement at the University of Salt Lake with Professor Landau at the Intermountain Conference of Children's Literature. I had over 5,000 reading teachers there from all over the world. I'd never given a talk in my life, but boy, did I talk to those teachers. You might say Wilson Rawls' speech that day at the University of Utah was a revival speech, meant to bring back to life once again his boy and dog story. The long and the short of it was this, those teachers and librarians, coupled with the copies of his book that had been made available for the conference, with a great burst of publicity the book needed from the beginning. Strange as it seems, the publisher had actually been trying to sell it all along as a book for the adult reader, not as a children's book. But when the teachers and librarians went back to their schools and began reading it aloud and sharing it with students, the letters began to pour into the publisher, and so did the book orders. At that point, the publisher began to reconsider how it was selling the book. They began marketing it for children and their teachers. Each year since then, it has sold more copies than the previous year. Indeed, it has become an American children's classic. When people heard the story of Wilson Rawls' life, they often thought of all the years he had spent struggling to write, years of being unknown and unpublished. They imagined what other great books he might have written in those years of obscurity, and then they would ask him if he had any regrets. Here is how he would answer them. I've always told them, well, sure, I, no, I don't have any regrets. I set a goal in my life as a small boy it took a long time to get there, but 
I finally got what I wanted out of life. I'm a writer now. But if I do have any regrets, it would be just one. I wish my dad could have lived where one more time I could have walked up to him, just like I did the day I walked up to him with that story in my hand, a barefooted boy, and said, Dad, do you think I could ever write a story like that? I wish he'd have lived to where one more time I could have walked up to him with these two books and just held them out to him and said, there they are, Dad. It sure took a long time. Wilson Rawls never had any children of his own, unless you count his readers. Then you could say he had millions of children. And during those last 20 years, the children's letters and his visits to their schools went a long way toward making up for the years of being unpublished and unknown. And I can't think of a better way to end this visit with Wilson Rawls than the little anecdote he'd like to tell about one school and one child. It speaks volumes about the man he was and the kind of soul it takes to write for children. Here he's talking about the letters from schools and his wondering whether the years of poverty and struggle were worth it. In my home, we have a room full of letters from these kids. And I thought it was all worth it, but you know, really way down deep inside, I didn't know for sure whether it had been worth it or not. Uh, I know I worried my mother a lot all those years and my brothers and sisters. But it was something I wanted to do and I just wouldn't quit it. But not long ago, I think that, uh, I think that that old boy up there has a way of finding these answers for you sometime because not long, just a few months before we left Idaho, there was a little school up in the edge of the Teton Mountains. And for about three years, about two or three times a year, I'd get a package of letters from every kid in that school. It was just a little country school. And they had seen me on TV, and they'd uh, read about me in a paper and on the news and, and the movie. And every one of those kids in those letters, they'd say, please, Mr. Rawl, come talk to us. We know you talk to other schools all over the country. But it's kind of hard for us to go way off like that to one school. It's very expensive. And, and if Walt and I goes, we'd like to have a few schools to where we could meet quite a few kids. But uh, I didn't pay too much attention to the letters because it just looked like uh, there was no way I could get up there. But I'd been off on a trip, and boy, it was a grinding trip for about three weeks. It was in the winter, cold. I flew into the airport, and my wife picked me up. It was oh, about 9 o'clock at night, spitting snow. And as we drove back to our home, we had to drive right through town. And we stopped at a stoplight, and we were sitting there, and I was so tired and worn out, I wasn't saying anything. And my wife said, uh, you got another package of letters from that little school? And I said, I did, and she said, yeah. 
and I didn't pay any attention to it. We got home, and I took a good hot bath, and I was so tired and worn out, I couldn't go to sleep. She went off to bed, and I, she had my mail in a great big old box, and I was sitting going through this mail, and I came to this package of letters from that little school. When I first picked it up and saw the, where it came from, I started to lay it over to one side, but I don't know why. I, something just said no. I opened it up and started reading the letters. Same thing all over again. Please, Mr. Rawls, come and talk to her. I went in, woke my wife up, and I said, Honey, we're going up to that little school. I can't take any more of these letters. <laughs> she said, Well, good. When do you want to go? I said, Well, I'll rest up tomorrow, and you can call up there and tell them we're coming. The day after that, why, we got in our car and drove up there. When we drove up in front of that little school, I wish you could have seen it. The kids were all looking out the window in the little school, and all of them were waving. And I was waving with both hands. My wife was driving. And just as I got out of the car, the doors to that little schoolhouse flew open, and here they come. The teacher couldn't do anything with them. And they come out and they pawed on me all the way into the school. I talked to them for two hours. They had five books in their little school, and if you ever saw five ragged books, boy, those had been used. I was sitting at a table like this, autographing the books for them. I had my arm up. The kids were all around me. And... Uh, all at once, off to my right, there was a commotion in the group, and I heard the older kids growling at somebody. And what it was, it was a little boy. He was so little, he couldn't see over them big kids. He wanted to see me. And he had ducked his head and was wiggling his way, and this is what they got all upset about. He wound up right by my side. And when he came up, the kids was all shoving him. I guess some of them was kicking at him, but he didn't care. And when he came up to my side, he kind of hit me, and I was autographing, and I turned around and looked at him. And uh, I could tell by looking at his clothes that he probably came from a poor family. He needed a haircut, I know that. And I noticed that his hands were kind of dirty. They had a dirt playground. But he had the sweetest smile I ever seen. And he leaned over and just in a kind of a whisper, he said, Mr. Rawls, I've read your Red Fern story 13 times. He said, after hearing you today, I'm going to read it again. I know he was telling me the truth. I thanked him and I went on with my autograph and I thought that's all of it. But it wasn't. He just stood there. And he had both hands up on the table, and his left hand was about that far from my elbow where I was autographing. And I wasn't paying any attention to him. He was just standing there looking off like he didn't have a thought in the world. But I noticed that his left hand, he kept moving it over. And I thought, well, what's this kid going to do now? You never know what they're going to do. 
But I felt him when he touched me on the elbow. When he did, I turned around and looked at him, and he smiled again, and he ducked his head, and back through the crowd he went. And I sat there for several seconds trying to figure this out. And finally, I figured it out. All he wanted to do was just touch the man that wrote that story. That's all he wanted. He couldn't have wanted anything else. We went out and got in our car. I told my wife, I said, Honey, I think I found the answer to it all. She said, What do you mean? I said, I know now that those 40-something years of my life that I threw away, I know they were worth it. She said, how, how come you to know that now? And I said, oh, I know. I found it all. The answer to it all. She said, well, where'd you find the answer at? And I said, in the touch of a little boy's hand. Thank you. Since it was first published in 1961, Where the Red Fern Grows has continued to win new fans each year among both school children and adults. With more than a million copies in print, it is among the five most widely read middle grade novels ever published in America and is frequently read aloud to children as young as six. The hardcover edition of Red Fern, as well as Wilson Rawls' other book, The Summer of the Monkeys, is published by Doubleday and the paperback by Bantam and both are available through your local bookstore and your local free public library.